Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Traverse Theatre, Edinburgh. We now join the theatre's literary associate and your host, Rosie Kelliger. Hello and welcome to the Travcast. Today I'm talking to playwright, novelist and performer Alan Bissett. His novels include Boy Racer, Death of a Ladies' Man and Pac-Men and his plays, many of which have been made in collaboration with director Sasha Kyle, include The Ching Room, Turbo Folk, The Pure, The Dead and The Brilliant, Ban This Filth, The Red Hourglass and his self-performed one-woman show, The Moira Monologues, which was revived at this year's Edinburgh Fringe and played to packed houses. He was Glenfiddich Scottish Writer of the Year in 2011 and apparently has a street in Falkirk named after him, which I'm sure I'll be asking him about shortly. At the moment, his play One Thinks of It All as a Dream, about Pink Floyd founder member Sid Barrett, is playing here at the Traverse as part of our Play Pie and Pint season uh, and as part of the Scottish Mental Health Arts and Film Festival. Alan, it's really nice to have you here. Thank you. It's nice to be invited. (laughs) So I'd love to talk to you uh, about... Um, one thinks of it all as a dream because obviously Sid Barrett is an iconic figure in uh, popular culture Um, there's a sort of mythology surrounding him and Floyd are still huge as um, the legions of folk queuing up for tickets here and at Oran Moore in Glasgow um, would attest it would be great to hear a bit about um, what drew you to to Sid and to Pink Floyd uh, as as a subject and and what those sort of responsibilities of, of writing about real people and also writing about real people that are held in such affection and esteem by so many mm. uh, audiences, what, what that's like. Um, well, the play was a commission from the Scottish Mental Health Arts and Film Festival. Andrew and Lewis um, from the festival approached me about doing it because they've uh, for the first year started commissioning not just curating, they usually just curate work that other people are creating so they wanted to do something with a specific mental health theme um, and Andrew already knew that I was a massive Pink Floyd fan that is the church at which I worship <laughs> uh, so he felt that I would probably be quite suitable for doing this uh, and I was really glad he asked because th- as far as commissions go, that's that's a dream for me. Years ago Sasha and I, when we were, we always when we finished a project sort of meet up shortly afterwards and say, well, what are we going to do next? And I did at one point pitch a play to her about Pink Floyd. I didn't know what form I wanted it to take, uh, but I wanted to do something on the theme of Pink Floyd because I had so much to say about Pink Floyd. Um, because I think if you're really into a band or really really into anything, you know, if you're into a football team or if you're into a particular film director, uh, you start to, in a way, use them as a prism for all sorts of different issues. Because if you, if you have uh, read their work very thoroughly, you start to realise that you know, the, 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 the analysis of any kind of art crosses over into politics and crosses over into economics and crosses over into um, you know, saying things about society. And Pink Floyd is like that for me. Their story's so long and so interesting that there's so many themes you could pull out of it, and this is just one of them. This particular play about the issue of mental health. Uh, but in terms of your responsibility to real people who are still alive, I mean, Sid Barrett's not alive anymore, but two of the characters in the play are still alive. Um, now, there's so much in the public record about Pink Floyd that, in a way, you can be quite fearless about it. You go, well, they did kick him out the band. 
he did take LSD. You know, nobody's reputations are being impugned here because these things did happen. But you weren't there in the room as these things were happening. And is the sensitivity uh, about uh, around the portrayal of the friendship uh, between the band members in the play and, and how you tell that story, presumably? Yeah, yeah. I mean, first of all, the extent to which Sid Barrett actually suffered from um, mental health problems is disputed because there have been some assessments that have said, well, do you know what? A lot of it, he was actually putting it on and he was well aware of what was going on and he was manipulating situations to try and expose the ridiculousness of the music industry. Uh, and he didn't want to be in the band and you know this, or, or it was always sort of an elaborate art project. Um, and I think there's something in that. You know, I think there was a, a, a sort of myth for a while of Looney Sid, who was just, you know, f- start freaking out because he was mad. Uh, and I think there's been some um, uh, readdressing of that mythology recently from people saying, well, no, maybe maybe there was a bit more method in his madness. You know, think Hamlet, right? You know, when I was writing him, that was actually one of the characters that I had in mind. And funnily enough, one of the scenes in the earlier drafts, I found a moment in one of his biographies that said um, during one of his gigs as the band were sort of, you know, putting down their instruments and the, and the stage was getting unpacked, he recited Hamlet's soliloquy. Now, you might go, what did he do that for? Because he's mad. Or you might go, well, that was him telling us. That was him telling us that he was, he was acting at a sort of part when he was appearing to play up on stage. We've got no way of knowing. He did take huge amounts of LSD, and I would imagine that that also would contribute to strange functioning behaviour. Roger Waters has got a theory that Sid was schizophrenic uh, and that this was exacerbated by LSD. So it's the it's the unknowability of Sid now that makes him so fascinating for me as a dramatist uh, that you can almost project any kind of theory and he's no here to respond to it. And I suppose also it feeds into that sort of age-old question about the relationship between art, creativity um, and what we would now describe as mental health um, and what once might have been thought of as creative genius can now be described in a clinical way and does that does that diminish people is that helpful well I mean I'm not a medical professional so it's very difficult for me to ascertain where the line would be between um, mental problems and creativity but I think if you take something like the context of a play Right, if you come in to see a play, let's say at the Traverse, and the lights go down, and there are people on stage who come crawling on in all fours, barking like dogs and sniffing the legs of the audience, because of the context, we understand. Oh, they're pretending. This is art. These people are sane. They're just pretending to be a dog, but nonetheless, they're pretending to be a dog. So sometimes you might look at somebody. Let's say somebody doing that in the street, in their head. This might be some sort of creative outlet or uh, artistic expression. They just refuse to recognise the context. And I suppose that's uh, what the character of R.D. Lang, who appears in the play, is kind of saying about, is there such a thing as madness or is it in fact a sane response to difficult circumstances or to stressful or problematic circumstances? Yeah, yeah. And it was important to have that in the play, I think, that that... um, Different angle that R.D. Lang gives, which is, well, maybe it's society that's mad. You know, we 
trained to do these jobs that don't fulfil us in any way to earn money to buy stuff that we don't really need. And as this goes on year after year after year, we get sadder and sadder and sadder. So the people that rebel against this and colour outside the lines, that's a perfectly rational, that's almost the sanest response to an insane society. And uh, I think in some ways that's a perfectly good reading of what Sid Barrett was doing uh, in the early Pink Floyd. So, um, yeah, but I don't want to come down on one, one conclusion or another. You know, I, I want all these things to be able to coexist, all of these theories and interpretations to be able to coexist in the play. Absolutely, and it's that ambiguity which is fascinating, and and I suppose also which is perhaps the more the most humane response to writing about real people, real lives, uh, whether or not they're people who are still alive. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think if you're writing about somebody who is real, especially if they're still alive, but you know, even if they're not. I think you've got some responsibility to show the complexity of them. You've got that responsibility if you're writing any kind of character, whether fictional or not. That's what you go for as a playwright. But if it's somebody who actually lived and you're just portraying them as, say, a monster, you know what I mean? If you actually look at the... Uh, you know, even, even when people are portraying people like Hitler, if you look at his treatment in uh, films and television series, actors and writers will work really hard to try and make you believe in him as a human being. That's not to say that they're trying to uh, redeem him in any way. It's very difficult to redeem somebody like Hitler. But they need you to believe that he was at least human in order for that to work as drama. Well, yes, in order for it to be satisfying. Exactly. Uh, as a theatrical experience, we need to be able to understand the, the, the assorted dimensions of a character. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I wonder if you could tell us a, a bit more in terms of delving into a person, a real person who is your starting point for a piece of drama, what your research process or your drafting process uh, was on this play and, and whether it was about trawling through, you know, you've talked about the stuff that's already in the public domain, the stuff that's already on record about mm. Floyd and their history, about Sid. Um, how did you strike that balance between the research, between the act of creation as a writer? Um, well, I wonder if it was slightly different in this one because I've been reading about Pink Floyd literally since I was 14. So you've been researching 20, the play I've been researching this play for 26 <laughs> years. Um, but nonetheless, there's a huge amount of Floyd literature out there and I did have to go back over a lot of it because you realise, well, if I'm writing about him in the summer of 1967, where was he living? Who was he living with? Um, you know, what were, what were his uh, social circumstances? Um, and you need to make sure you're getting some of those things at least close to, to what they were at the time, you know. Um, so it was no real um, task to go back and read over some of those books anyway because, you know, I, I love them, you know, and I love that whole story and I get so much from it. What I did do this time around was immerse myself in his music. Now, I listen to Pink Floyd quite regularly, but they've got a huge back catalogue. You know, if you're listening to Pink Floyd in 1987, that's a completely different experience from listening to 1967. They are literally two different bands. The music sounds not even remotely like each other. So I immersed myself in Piper of the Gates of Dawn, the Floyd's first album, his two solo albums, to try and feel what he was feeling and think how he was thinking. Um, and use that to try and then map his emotional journey onto the play. So it's not just research. If you're writing about an artist, you need to immerse yourself in, in that person's art. Um, but a few years ago, I did write a play about Andrea Dworkin, the radical feminist, who's a, 
in, in every respect a completely different character from Sid Barrett and it was the same process you know read what she wrote um, read as much as you possibly can and you, fi- you start to find the dramatic moments they just pop out of your reading you go oh that would make a great scene oh that would make a great line of dialogue you know so um, there's no other way around it and have you had any contact with the surviving members of Floyd about the play or, ab- or about your research and the process? <clears throat> uh, well, Andrew Eaton-Lewis, who commissioned the play and has been essentially its de facto producer, did contact Pink Floyd's management. And I gather that it was referred to them, that they themselves... I mean, I don't know how it works. I don't know if they're all sitting around a table and you know, going through a big stack of requests to use their music and to discuss it individually. I don't know how these things work. But they are aware of it, and they did give us permission to use their music. Uh, but we had Ian Barrett, who is Sid's nephew, in Glasgow for a panel discussion after one of the shows. And that was really fascinating for me and for everybody in the audience. That was a real eye-opener, because this is someone from his life. This is his nephew. You know, he thinks of Sid Barrett as Uncle Roger. Sid's real name was Roger. Uh, who used, they used to go and visit. He was a middle-aged man, you know. And they, it took them years to realise that he'd been a rock star at some point. So he's got a completely different perspective than Sid Barrett. The Barrett family find all of this a bit strange. This constant pressure and attention on somebody who made music for about three years, a long, long time ago. They're like, why, why do people care this much? Uh, but they realise, I mean, I think he said to me at one point, he's like, this isn't going to go away, is it? And I was like, no, mate, no, it's no. They'd thought that when he died, there would be this flurry of attention and then that would be it. But I think they're now realising this is actually just going to get bigger and bigger. So that was fascinating for me. Yeah, for sure. And now that the play has uh, obviously it, it's still running here at the Traverse and it ran uh, very successfully at Oran Moore in Glasgow as well um, what's your sense been of the Pink Floyd fans uh, whether hardcore or casual who've come to see the play and, and what sense did you have of, of maybe a responsibility to them or just an awareness of them in, in writing it mm. and that there will be other there are uh, millions of huge Floyd fans like yourself out mm. there who are invested in that story and in that music? Um, well, I certainly wanted to attract Pink Floyd fans, but it was more important to me that I was attracting people who didn't know or care the first thing about Pink Floyd, and they treated it as a piece of theatre. Um, because I had to know that it still communicated to people who didn't even know the first thing about the band. But I was certainly also interested in the reaction of people who knew a lot about the band. And I had cause to meet a lot of them when they came to the panel discussion. Because people who come to a panel discussion where you've got somebody on the panel who is the, uh, who's written a play about the band and you've got the nephew of one of the band members, that's going to be your really committed Pink Floyd fan. And I can talk their language. Um, but we all went to the bar afterwards and it's the closest I've ever been to some sort of fan convention where everybody in the bar, everybody knows. If you make a joke about, oh, well, what would Roger Waters say about that? Everybody's going to laugh. You can't do that at your mate's dinner party, you know, down the road. Um, and it was really fascinating for me to hear. Um, do you know, I met this one woman who had told me she was autistic and bisexual, as it happens. 
And she said for most of her life, she's felt like a social outcast. She's found it very difficult to make friends. People think she's weird. People think she's strange. And she sort of like looked around the bar and she said, and I feel like I'm at home. Because the sort of people who are attracted to Sid Barrett are the sort of people who maybe do feel a bit alienated from society and do empathise with them to a certain extent and don't really trust other people a great deal or certainly the social structures that we're all born into. And that really affected me. You know, I was like, whoa, I've played some small part in facilitating that, you know? Um, And she described Pink Floyd as a world that she lives inside. And I get what that means. I understand what that means. So that, you know, what you're referring to there, I didn't feel like I was in conflict with other Pink Floyd fans. I felt like this is a chance for us to come together and talk about what this band means, you know? That felt good. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And before we finish up, I just really want to ask, the street in Falkirk, named after you? Yeah, yeah, that was nice. (laughs) Um, At first I thought it was a practical joke. When I got the email, I phoned up my mates, I was like, aye, good one, you know what I mean? Bissett Court, very good, aye. What you're going to do, it should be in court. Is that what you're going to write on it? And they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. And so I replied to the, the number in the email, and uh, it was a councillor in Falkirk. I said, Yeah, we're building a new street on the housing scheme where I grew up. Um, and we thought, Well, since you grew up here, why don't we name it after you? And I was like, I'll, I'll have that. More streets named after writers. Please. Yeah, let's Definitely. do it. Aye. <laughs> Great stuff. Alan Bissett, thank you so much for coming to talk to us. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this podcast from the Traverse Theatre Edinburgh. For more information, please log on to www.traverse.co.uk.